0: Morning, Watermark. I don't know if I'm supposed to speak or dance after that bumper. You know what I'm saying? It's like da, 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 whatever. <clears throat> hey, uh, my name is Nathan, and it's my privilege to be with you this morning. I serve on the equipping team here at Watermark, and so that little pamphlet, that insert that's inside your Watermark News, that is for you from the equipping team. Merry Christmas! Right? So if you've never been, if you've never been on Join the Journey, I would uh, highly encourage you to sign up for that. It sends you an email. It's a super easy way to just remind you in a, uh, through a devotional that we can spend time together in the scriptures every day. That's not meant to shame you or, you know, give you, throw some kind of guilt trip at you if you don't do it. It's just our way of going, hey, join in with us. Join the journey. And, uh, and so some of y'all might be like, hey, I don't know who you are because uh, you, you know, haven't been up here very often. Well, I serve, like I said, on the equipping team, and the things that I kind of oversee, I oversee our great questions ministry, crickets. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't have to clap for it. It's, whatever. Um, but uh, no, we meet every Monday night in the South Community Room uh, from 730 to 830. So if you have, actually, this is a great way for me to uh, push this to you, if you have Friends or coworkers or neighbors who are asking you difficult questions about the faith, and you're just like, I have no idea. Then bring them, bring them on Monday night. We would love to interact with them. I also oversee uh, Equip Disciple. There you go. <laughs> All right. So the Equip Disciple ministry, which is our basic training in the spiritual disciplines, that's going to launch in the first week of February. So if you want to go, sign up for that would encourage you to. I also do all of our uh, equipping courses. And so if you've taken an online equipping course or if you've taken a live one, then uh, that's kind of the part of the equipping ministry that, that I oversee. We're actually teaching a, new, a brand new one on the history of the church starting in uh, February. So if you want to go sign up for that, you can learn kind of our story. How did we get here? And then the last thing I do is uh, the equipping podcast. So that's kind of our area where we don't really try to, like, water it down. We're just, like, throwing stuff at you and, like, hey, hopefully you can get it. And if you don't, then always email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. All right. (laughs) That was was my equipping commercial. Well, hey, today we are going to tie up the focus series that we've been in in 1 Timothy. And uh, what I want to do is I want to really help us at the beginning. I just want to help put you into the world of the first century in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, where the church at Ephesus was dealing with the things that it was dealing with. Because that's the recipient, that's the audience that Paul wrote 1 Timothy to. Timothy was the elder, was an elder, and he was overseeing that local body in Ephesus. So I want to get our mind around that. I want to help us think through the first uh, Ephesus in the first century. And then I want to take us through three different things. One is, Uh, Paul's message, what was his message to this church? What was Timothy's confession about what Paul is reminding him, hey, you you made this confession. We're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at what is our opportunity coming out of Paul's message and Timothy's confession. So that's where we're going to be going this morning. But before we do that, because it's Christmas and Christmas is coming up, I'm going to take a little poll, okay? Uh, Christmas is whose birthday? Oh, come on, guys. Christmas is whose birthday? There you go, right? Good. Yeah, you passed you pass the quiz. Uh, and some, when I think about birthdays, I'm like, well, some of us, we, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of people in here. There's probably a lot of different uh, just opinions about birthdays that are represented in this room. So I'm going to take a little poll. How many of you guys, by a show of hands, just hate birthdays? You literally hate them. Raise your hand. Right? Okay. Not very many of you. Some people are like, hey, I just like, I don't like the reminder that I'm getting older, or I don't like to be of the center of attention or anything like that, okay? How many of y'all are kind of like, I don't hate it, but I don't love it either. I just kind of, okay, cool. How many of y'all are that? Okay, sweet. Pretty good pretty good uh, representation there. I probably fall into that category. How many of you, and I didn't even know this was a thing until uh, a few years ago, but how many of y'all like, like, love your birthday? It's like, it's not just... <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I got a cheer section over there, right? So how many of you love your birthday? You're like, you don't just celebrate your birthday. You celebrate your birth week. And some of it, hey, some of you guys celebrate your birth month. People are, hey, it, I'm, I say that, on one, to be like, are you serious? But then uh, on another, uh, the, like Callie Nixon, who's around here on staff, like she's the queen of that. So uh, if, you, if that's you, then you're in good company with Callie. All right, but one more question. How many of you guys love your birthday so much that you have tried to reset the entire global calendar around your birthday? Anybody? Okay, that, that's good, okay? That's a good thing that nobody raised their hand. Uh, but that's actually not uncommon in history. Back in the day in the ancient world, And when ancient world, I mean like in the first century when Rome was the world power, right? They went off of uh, the Roman calendar, which was called the AUC calendar. It's from a Latin term that means from the the founding of the city of Rome. And that's the calendar they went off of. That that seminal event of the founding of the city of Rome was the event that uh, they set their calendar off of. But in... Uh, 27 BC, um, you had these civil wars that were going on in Rome. So you remember, uh, you you got uh, et tu brute, right? Julius Caesar stabbed a bunch of times. He dies right there on the Senate floor. And then you have uh, all of these different factions that are trying to fill that power void in Rome, and they break off, and you have Mark Antony and Cleopatra down in Egypt. You have uh, Germania to the north, you have uh, all these people to the west that are that are now going. Hey, there's a power vacuum. We want to fill that. And there was another guy who was actually the uh, he was actually the rightful heir to the throne. His name was Octavius, and Octavian was the guy that was like, Hey, I got to go around and put all this stuff down. So Octavian literally went around the known Roman world and he put down all of these civil wars. He unified the entire Roman Empire under his banner and brought peace and order to the Roman Empire. Because of that, um, he became the Roman Emperor, and he took the name Caesar Augustus. Which Caesar Augustus is just the, the, his—that was a title. It's like Caesar, that really awesome guy over there, right? And uh, he's he. He took all of these different territories. Well, in one of them, in a, what they call Asia or Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, in one of them, there was a guy, a proconsul, which is like the governor of that area. It'd be like the state governor, like, uh, who's our state governor? Um, yeah, 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 that guy. <clears throat> um, yeah, my mind just went blank. I probably shouldn't even have said that. Um, anyway... <laughs> Whoever the governor is, uh, he, the governor of, of Asia Minor at the time was a guy named Paulus, which is interesting, you know, no, no pun intended there. But a guy named Paulus, and Paulus, because Augustus had brought peace and order to the land, he sent these inscriptions, there's like 10 or 12 of them, all over Asia. And these inscriptions were basically an announcement of the good news that Augustus was bringing peace and order to the world. And he proposed in these inscriptions to reset the calendar to be on not on the founding of the city of Rome but on the birthday of the son of God Augustus. Here's what it says. It's part of it, okay? This is the you can see it up there. That's it's called the pre-in calendar inscription. But this is part of what it says. It says since providence which has ordered all things of our life and is deeply interested in our lives, has ordered all things in sending Augustus, whom she filled with virtue for the benefit of men, sending him as a savior, both for us and for those after us, him who would end war and order all things, right, which was the peace of Rome. And since Caesar, by his appearing, surpassed the hopes of all those who received the good news, that literally means the gospel, not only those who were benefactors before him, but even the hope among those who will be left afterward. In other words, Augustus was this guy, nobody could, have, nobody, nobody could have set up a high enough expectation for him to reach because he surpassed all of it. Not just the expectation of him, but of anybody coming after him. So in other words, the guy is schmoozing, right? He's like, he's like Caesar's so amazing, like he's putting them up. And the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world through him. Isn't that interesting? He sent these things out in 9 B.C. This is before Jesus is even born. You see a lot of of shared language here, right? So that, that inscription would have been sent out to all these cities in Asia Minor, and they would have been prominently displayed in the public square where everybody can see it. And so when you're going about your daily business and you're doing all this stuff, it's like, "Oh, this is a constant reminder that Caesar is the king. He is the god." It's the center, it would have been the center of the imperial worship system to Caesar in Ephesus, right in the heart of the city, right? And so a little bit of background, cuz I know a lot of times you guys are like, "Hey, Don't really know. uh, I hear the word Ephesus, and I might think in my mind some ruins in Turkey or whatever, but I don't really know anything about it. And so I want to give you a little bit of uh, just background on what Ephesus was. So it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was the largest, then Athens, and then Ephesus. So don't think like, uh, sorry, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. Don't think like East Texas small town. Right. If anybody's from East Texas, don't send me an email, please. Um, So don't think like East Texas small town. Think like DFW. Think like Big Complex, a a city that had thousands of, uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people. It was also really, just like you would expect, in an urban area, it was very syncretistic. Syncretism is basically where it's kind of like an a la carte uh, religion. I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. Very high pagan influence. Well, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. It's called uh, the Temple to Artemis, which I think they've got a picture of somewhere. Um, where? Yeah, it's somewhere. <clears throat> they have a, oh, there it is. Right, so you have this Temple to Artemis in Ephesus, and so they're, they are worshiping the deity Artemis, but then all of it is under the umbrella of uh, the Roman cult, which is the goddess Roma and her son, Caesar, the son of God. So that had huge economic implications for anybody who was in Ephesus. I mean, if you decided you did not want to be uh, a part of the pagan worship culture or uh, or bow the knee to Caesar, then you couldn't do business. You couldn't be a part of trade unions. Um, it had social implications. You could not. You were ostracized because you were on the outside. And this is the environment that the church was in. It was the environment that uh, Paul walked into in about 51 or 52. In his second missionary journey, this little guy stepped in to Ephesus and had a message for the city. What was his message? What was Paul doing? Well, Paul's message... Um, and, in order to even set this up, I've got to uh, take us back a little bit to get into the minds of a first-century Christian, because one of the major differences between them and us is they did not have a category for religion. Like if you'd have said, like, "Hey, what you know? What what do you do in your religious life?" or or where it was segmented or fragmented away from everything else, no, they didn't have a category for that. Everything was religion. Like, all of life. And, and we don't have a category for kings. So just like they wouldn't have a category for, like, a separate thing that is religion, we don't have a category for, hey, who's the king? Right? We think, like, hey, well, we're, we're democracy. We get a vote. I got a voice. I get to say. Eh, it's not the way it was in the ancient world. They had their, their entire lives were ordered around this king. And so, Paul didn't go around like you probably think he did. Paul, Paul was not going around asking people if they had a faith, right? Like, that would have been a totally absurd question in the ancient world. Hey, do you have a faith? I mean, literally, everybody would have looked at you and been like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, everybody has a faith. Do you see what I'm saying? And, and in the same way, he wasn't going around asking them the, what we call the, the Kennedy questions, right? Like, Hey, how, are, how certain are you that if you died today, that you would go to heaven when you died? Or on a scale of 1 to 10, how, and look, I'm not knocking those things. These things aren't bad. I'm just trying to put us into the actual context of first century Ephesus. That's not what they were talking about, right? And so what was Paul doing? Well, at the outset, Paul very much viewed himself as somebody who was announcing something new. He wasn't like preaching or trying to get people saved so that they could go to heaven when they died. He was announcing the reality of a new kingdom. And so just like in 1 Timothy 2 verse 7, he says, I was appointed a herald of the good news, an announcer of the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright said this in his book, uh, Paul, it's a biography. So if you like biographies and you're looking for something to read over the break, pick this one up. It's really good. I highly recommend it. He said this, the early Christians didn't focus much attention on the question of what happened to people immediately after they died. They seldom spoke about it at all. They were much more concerned with the kingdom of God, which was, comp- was something that was happening and would ultimately happen completely on earth as in heaven. God's kingdom had already been launched through the events of Jesus' life. Unless we get this firmly in our heads, we will never understand the inner dynamic of Paul's mission. The announcement of the kingdom and its king had to do with the foundation of a new polis, a, a new city, a new community, right at the heart of the existing system. Paul's missionary journeys were aimed at establishment of a new kind of kingdom on earth as in heaven. A kingdom with Jesus as its king. And so Paul, this little short balding guy, you know, walks into Ephesus, and at the very heart of what he's doing is to announce a new kingdom. He goes literally into the heart of the city where that calendar inscription would have been uh, posted, and he's like, hey, hey, There's a new kingdom, and Caesar is not the king. He's a herald of this good news of Jesus. And he has a long and successful ministry there. I mean, you read about it in Acts 18 and 19. Um, And so at the time that he writes this letter to Timothy, which is about 10 years after he first lands in Ephesus, the church at Ephesus had, had been infiltrated by false teachers. They'd been infiltrated by all kinds of like wild ideas. And there was probably a sense of, of uh, Jewish, um, a Jewish aspect in the church that was trying to pull people back into the law, right? And so Paul is in this closing section in 1 Timothy 6. He's really recounting the, everything that he said in the letter prior. And so this really serves as a summary section For the entire letter, which is why it's appropriate that we're covering it, you know, uh, in this last week on First Timothy in the Focus series, and so you you see like he tells Timothy pursue personal holiness, which you find in chapter four. He talks about fighting the good fight, which you see in chapter one. He talks about fulfilling your calling. Also, you see in chapter four, be above reproach. See that in chapter four. Guard the message. That's in chapter one. Um, But. Let's take a look at it because there's this section in here that's really critical if we're going to understand what Paul is actually doing in this section. So read with me, 1 Timothy chapter six, verses eleven to twenty-one. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Right? If you heard last week, Mickey was talking about like the love of money and um, and kind of the, the materialism of the day, which clearly would have been in Ephesus which is an urban center. So he's like, hey, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or even can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those, those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and in so in so doing have departed from the faith grace be with you all and the letter ends right there okay nice little, nice little salutation at the end the first thing i would say as as somebody who's speaking this to you this morning is Dude, look at all of those commands right this is like, so I have a military background, so just forgive me, right? But this is like somebody going, like, hey, you have an area weapon, which is a machine gun, like a, there are various types of machine guns, and you have, like, all of the ammo you want. Just start spraying, da 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 right? I mean, it's like, that, that is so much ammo, that all of these commands, which is like, hey, flee, pursue, fight, take hold, command, guard. It would be so easy, and it's tempting for a guy who's, for a, you know, zealous Guy who's given a message, it'd be really easy to like dial in on those and go, hey, I'm just gonna start knocking targets down. This is gonna be so awesome. I'm gonna give you all this stuff to do, all these commands. But that would, but frankly, that would be a disservice to you. And it would be a disservice to, I think, the heart of the text, the heart of what Paul is trying to do here. So instead, I want to focus. I want to focus in on the central section. Verses 12 through 16. So as we finish this focus series, we're going to look at the heart of what Paul is doing um, in 12 to 16. So let's look at this closer. I'm going to read it again, 12 through 16. And I want, I want to focus on some words that are used here that are not a mistake. He says, Timothy, take hold of the eternal life. Don't think about eternal life as something that's merely future it does have a future component to it, right? But the eternal life that Paul is talking about is something that you can take hold of here and now. It's a type of life that you live into as you live in the kingdom of God under the kingship of Jesus. Literally, that's a, probably a great definition for it, is the, that personal relationship that you have with Jesus brings a new kind of rulership, a new kind of kingdom into your life, and you live differently under the umbrella of the kingship of Jesus. And that is eternal life. Now, people are like, well, what about like eternity? What about forever? Yeah, it doesn't ever stop. It's awesome. Dude, even if you die... He's just going to raise you back from the dead, and then you keep going. It's amazing. Well, more on that. I'm out punting my coverage, dad gummit. Or I'm getting ahead of myself. Hang on. Stand by. Here we go. All right. <clears throat> Take hold of the eternal life. i only got one sentence there. <laughs> to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's interesting. A good confession. What is that? In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So if you're doing good hermeneutics or a good uh, Bible study methodology and you're going, ah, one of the things that I'm supposed to be doing is paying attention to repetition, right? And especially unusual phrases or words like good confession. Where else do you see that, Right? So the number one tell is, whoa, that's interesting. I'm going to circle that or star it or whatever. And then if I see it repeated again, I'm, this is like emphatic. That's what's, this is, There's an emphasis here. And not only that, but it wasn't just Timothy's confession. Who else's confession was it? It was Jesus's confession. Dude, anytime you bring Jesus into the equation, that's like the ultimate Jesus juke, Right? It's like, hey, there's this, but oh, by the way, Jesus also did this. And it's like the ultimate trump card. You're like, yeah, I win. You know. And that's what Paul's doing here. It's a literary, This is a literary way of Paul grabbing Timothy and going, hey, dude, pay attention. It's fascinating. He does this also in chapter 1. He's reminding him. He's reminding him of the heart behind the message He's reminding him of the reality behind the message. That he's going, hey dude, this is not, this is not, a, this is not a small thing. This is the very center of our good news proclamation. And, and so he goes on and says, I, I want you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and only ruler, pay attention to that, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. So, so what is this good confession? And I, I want to I make sure we're clear because confession here is not you, like, there, there's nothing, like, sinful to confess. A lot of times we just think, like, confession involves, oh, I have to tell you all the bad things I've done, right? No, that here, this is like an announcement. It's a, her- it's a declaration of something that's true. I am confessing to the truth. And whatever it is, it's something that Jesus did while he was standing in front of Pilate. And, and so Paul charges Timothy to obey uh, this command to to guard to keep the uh, these all these commands that he's listed he's he's told him this because Jesus has has gone before and has been his example follow Jesus do what he did he also is uh, imploring Timothy to obey because uh, Jesus is going to appear now. <clears throat> The Greek word is epiphaneos. It's, it's the where we get epiphany from, to appear. And epiphaneos, or the appearing in the ancient world, was the same word that's used in the calendar inscription that said when Augustus appeared. It's used in the Greco Roman world actually quite a bit for like he, military heroes, for, for uh, whenever, whenever a, a war would be won, or some sort of order reestablished people would have said hey this is the appearing of this new thing this new kingdom this new order this new peace it typically was associated with deities in the ancient world and so when paul is definitely not using this word like by mistake he is very much contrasting the appearance of augustus with the appearance of jesus He goes on, not only does Jesus confess this, but Jesus, he references Jesus appearing. He also references God, the only ruler. Now, what do you think if you went around on, on the streets of Ephesus and you took a poll every day and you're like, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, I'm taking a poll today. Hey, how you doing? My name's Nathan. Yeah, awesome. I'm taking a poll. Hey, who is, the, who is the ruler? Who is the king of kings? Who is the Lord of lords? What do you think everybody would have said? Not rhetorical. What do you think everybody would have said? Caesar! There was only one of him. To say anything else would have been not only blasphemous to the Roman imperial worship system, it would have cost you a lot. And and Paul is coming back to this and he's going, hey, remember, in the midst of all of that, remember, God is the only ruler which means Caesar is not. God is the only king of kings. Jesus is the only Lord of lords. That was supposed to be Caesar. And Paul is going, no. The announcement of the good news of the kingdom of God was a direct affront to Roman power. It stood directly against it and said, no, Caesar, you're not the king. The throne you sit on is not your throne. You will not reign forever. Jesus will. Dude, he's not even done yet. He goes on and says the, he's the only immortal one. <coughs> Athanasia. There's two words in Greek for uh, uh, death or dead. One of them is, is necros, which just means you're just dead, like it's a dead thing. The other one is more of the idea of death, and that's thanatos. And thanatos, if you want to negate a Greek word, all you do is put an A in front of it. So if you want to say like, uh, you, like, our, like we have moral, and then you have amoral, which is like, not moral. You have thanatos, if you, want to, if you want to negate it, you have death. If you want to negate death, you just put an A in front of it. And the word you get is athanasia, not death. That's cool, right? You have all these people who are—you have all these people who are like, "Oh yeah, you know, Caesar is," and, and we translate it immortal. But literally, it, it is Jesus is the only one who does not have death. In fact, when he actually died, um, he, because he was not death, he was able to reverse it. That's epic. Not death. Sorry, I'm gonna to tone it down a <clears> bit. <throat> Look, immortality was commonly attributed to like to kings, to emperors, to heroes. Homer uses it in the Iliad. Uh, Aristotle uses it in on uh, on the heavens and the sibylline oracles and some of his literature. Dude, Paul's not even done yet. There's more. He says Jesus is also the one who lives in unapproachable light. And look, if you're a Jew in Ephesus in the first century, you hear unapproachable light and your, your mind, and I'm not saying yours, but an ancient Jewish person's mind would directly go to Exodus chapter 33, where Moses asks God to reveal his glory. And God says, hey, I'll put you in this cleft of the rock, but I have to guard you because uh, if you were to see all of my glory, it would, it would kill you. And so he graciously puts him, he hides him in the cleft of the rock. In other words, Paul in the middle of this passage is going, hey guys, this is not a secondary thing. I am telling you the the pulsating heartbeat of the announcement of the kingdom of God. And so what was Jesus' confession in front of Pilate? You guys remember John chapter 18, um, where... Pilate is, is interviewing Jesus. He's, he's, uh, Jesus is on trial. And, and Pilate looks at him and he goes, Hey dude, are you a what? Are you a king? And Jesus' good confession about himself, literally, he says, It is as you have said. Look, if I'm translating this like the Nathan version of you know, John 18, it's like Pilate going, hey, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus goes, you daggum right I am. Not only am I a king, I'm your king. So be careful about the words that are about to come out of your mouth. Because I'm not just a common criminal or an itinerant preacher or somebody who's just another messianic figure. I am the king of the universe So so what was Paul's confession Paul's confession is Jesus is the king What was Timothy's confession Timothy's confession was Jesus is the king this is, the, this is the good news that the gospel writers are writing about. Now, I'm just going to show you something really cool, okay? Because in the pre calendar inscription, in, that, in that, uh, uh, the calendar I talked about already, it says this. It says, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world. You want to know how Mark chapter 1, verse 1... Now, Mark, Mark is writing with Peter as his, back, as his source... And Mark is writing his gospel in Rome, in the seat of the entire imperial cult worship system. Mark is writing this. This is how the gospel of Mark starts, right? We already read in the calendar inscription, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. so cool the announcement of caesar augustus the son of god was directly assaulted by the good news of the coming of jesus the messiah the son of god look this is this is not just this is not a secondary thing the, the entire theme of the of the new testament it starts with the announcement of Jesus as the Davidic king in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. It ends with the appearing of Jesus as the king of kings in Revelation chapter 19. I mean, dadgum, this is the entire theme of the entire Bible. Adam is raised up from the dust and which is royalty language. He's raised up from the dust and he's made in the image of God. And where he failed, Jesus succeeds. The image of God fails, we fall with him, another image of God comes and succeeds. When we place our faith in him, we are reanimated and now we are with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is, this, this is the picture of who Jesus is in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that nobody even knows but himself. That's an awesome name. You don't even know what it is. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. It's so cool, man. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Look, it would be easy for me to just like focus in on those commands to you guys and be like, hey, guys, do these things. It's very different. It's very different. For, me to, for you to just walk out of here with just something else to do. And frankly, it would have been a, tra- a tragedy if I had just said, hey, do all these things. When right in the middle of the passage is a picture of our king. And so instead of telling you to do a bunch of stuff, I just want to tell you, look at Jesus. And then guess what will happen? all of those things that Paul reminds Timothy to do, all of that junk will just fall into place. Look, look! when Jesus is your king, when, when your life announces the kingship of Jesus, then not only are you going to stay away from stuff that would steal your heart away from the love of God, you, you are not going to want to do those things because you see Jesus. The beauty of Christ Announcing Jesus as king means that you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Not because you're trying to conjure something up in you, but because when you look at Jesus, he produces this stuff in you. And the more you begin to live into the kingdom of God, the more you realize, I'm not doing this. I am being acted upon by a force and a power outside of myself. It's the Holy Spirit. It means you don't put your hope in wealth, but in Jesus as king. It means you do good. It means you're generous and willing to share, not because, okay, I've got to do this because it's Christmas time. No, but because there is, there is eternal life that is welling up inside of you. You're generous because you want to be generous. You're good because you want to do good. You look out for others because you, you, you very naturally think about them and not yourself. This is what it likes to live under the kingship of Jesus. And look, guys, when things are not operative, when these things are not operative in your life, look, you, you, you primarily don't have an obedience problem. You don't need to sit there and go, okay, I'm going to try harder to obey. You're, that's not your problem. Your problem is you have a king problem. You can't see the king anymore. And so you need to be reminded of who Jesus is. Look, we all, have, we all have competing kingdoms. This is no surprise, right? But the real question is, hey, is the goddess Roma and Caesar the son of God? Is he king or is Jesus the son of God, your king? We have to, we have to examine that in every single facet of our lives. This is not something we can put over here and just keep it from, keep it separate or something like that. And so, look, guys, if you've strayed, if you're thinking about just this past week or the, the past month or even a season of life that you've been in where you're like, man, Jesus has just not been my king. I've been my king or wealth has been my king or whatever it is, just turn around. I think about my daughter, Jules, who just turned three yesterday, Baba Jules. Love Bubba Jules, right? She's the cutest thing on the face of the planet. Um, Also, shout out to Nate and Miles, but Jules. When Jules, and you guys know this, if if you're a parent, you know that when your child gets far enough away from you, you as a parent are like, hang on, what you doing over there? But then they also recognize it. And once they recognize it, what do they do? They're like, wait a minute, where's daddy? And she'll turn around and come running back and she'll hug my leg. And as a father who loves her, I'm pleased. Like I, I want to bring her into my arms. Look, if, if, if you've strayed away from King Jesus, it's okay. Just return. He's a good king. Right. What's crazy to me is that, um, is that he can hold everything together. He can literally crush the most formidable enemy with just a simple word. That's the imagery. That's the metaphor of the sword coming out of his mouth. He can crush his enemies with just a word. Um, but when this one actually, Epiphanes, when he appears, how does he appear? He is a help, he's the helpless baby of a teenage Jewish girl. Did you ever wonder about that? Why in the world would the sovereign of the universe become a little child? A helpless child who wouldn't go on to reign on a Roman cro- or reign in Rome on Caesar's throne, but die on a Roman cross. Why is that? There is only one answer. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. Why would the why would the king of the universe become a child? The only answer is because of the love of God. Because he loves you. He is a good king. He didn't come to subject people. He didn't come to rule us or own us through might. He came to win our hearts through love because he's a good king. Look, guys, 2020 has been crazy. It's been a nuts year. I don't think anybody argues with that. But Jesus is still the king. And that means... Your security isn't king. That means health is not the king. That means Trump is not the king. That means Biden is not the king. I don't care who's in the daggum White House. They are not the king. That means government's not the king. That means a daggum vaccine is not the king. That means your dwindling savings account is not the king. That means everything about your retirement or comfort or health For security is not the king. Jesus is the king. And look, guys, Caesar Augustus died a long time ago. But guess what? He stayed dead. When Thanatos hit him, he was not Athanasia. He was just necros. He was just dead. And not surprisingly, the calendar does not turn on his birthday. Instead, in AD 525, a Scythian monk named Dionysius began the before Christ and in the year of our Lord designation. And now, our entire calendar rotates on the incarnation of our king. Nobody even remembers Augustus except to date Jesus' birth by him. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And most people just read over his name and are like, who? But Jesus! That's awesome. And look, I, sometimes I'm like, man, we, we, we have no idea what we're, what we're singing when we sing Christmas songs. But the other day I was like, dude, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You guys know this song? Hark the herald angels sing. Right? You be on the worship team. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> All right, so hark the herald angels sing, where it's like, they're like, hey, hark, which means, hey, look, pay attention. The herald, the announcer, the proclaimer. And who is the herald? The herald is the angels. And they're announcing something. They're announcing glory, weight, authority, power, legitimacy. To the newborn king. Look guys, we have an opportunity today and every single day. We have an opportunity to do what Paul did. Well, ultimately, to do what Jesus did in front of Pilate. To do what Paul did. To do what Timothy did. And now it's our turn. To go to a world who is lost and chasing after their own kingdoms. They are serving the goddess Roma. They are serving Caesar. Caesar. And you get to proclaim that Jesus is the king. Yes. So y'all stand with me and let's proclaim. Heavenly Father, as we sing this song, I pray that from the depths of our heart that you have transformed. I pray that, that the announcement of the kingship of Jesus would burn away all of the competing kingdoms and we would be united in every aspect of our lives with the God who is truly life. And that we would sing with everything that we have, all hail King Jesus.